0: This is A-State Connections on KASU. I'm Jonathan Reeves. This is a weekly segment called A-State Connections and Create at State, Making Connections the Count. In this segment, we hear presentations during this year's Created State Virtual Symposium. And these are presentations from the College of Liberal Arts and Communication. First is Rachel Blocker with a presentation, Effect on Divorce on Children's Communication.
1: In the United States, a couple is divorced nearly every 13 seconds, resulting in a nationwide divorce rate of almost 50%. This, in turn, means that a large number of children in America are children of divorce. When a child experiences a divorce in their family, they face a multitude of disadvantages, including Worse performance in school, they're less likely to attend a secondary school, they're more likely to develop depression and substance abuse issues, they're more likely to have issues with authority, and they struggle to build and maintain meaningful relationships. So attachment theory was developed in 1958 by Bowlby and Answorth, and they deduced that you could understand a child's attachment style through their relationship with their caregiver. Um, They developed three different kinds of attachment styles. They are secure, avoidant, and anxious ambivalent. A secure child often receives the correct amount of care, resulting in a positive view of themselves and the world. Avoidant children, they receive too much or too little care, resulting in a negative view of the world. And anxious ambivalent children receive inconsistent levels of care. So one day they may have all of the attention from their parents, and the next day they may have none. Uh, Children of divorce are likely to fall in either the avoidant attachment style or the anxious ambivalent attachment style. Anxious ambivalent children are also likely to develop negative views of the world. However, they still may develop positive views of the world. It depends on the severity of the inconsistency in their care. So as these children grow up, these attachment styles follow them. Um, In 1990, Bartholomew looked further into attachment styles in adulthood, and she defined four categories stemming from er, Answorth's and Bowlby's initial three. They are secure, preoccupied, dismissive, and fearful. Adults who have a secure attachment style have a positive model of themselves and others, and they are more likely to maintain healthy relationships as they have better communication and conflict management skills. Preoccupied individuals, they have a negative model of themselves, but a positive model of the world. This means that they are very reliant on affirmation and they cling to relationships. They face issues communicating and they tend to focus on themselves in arguments and they're often overly controlling and emotional. And that stems from anxious, ambivalent attachments out in childhood. The fearful style of attachment in adulthood means that the adult has a negative view of themselves and others. They fear being let down, often to traumatic events in the past, like their parents' divorce. Um, They restrain themselves from disclosure, and they have less developed social skills because they avoid people, and that stems from anxious, ambivalent, and avoidant attachment styles in childhood. And then finally, dismissive uh, adults, they see themselves positively, but others negatively. This results in them being self-sufficient and avoiding relationships. They also tend to value material items over relationships, and that stems from avoiding. So in conclusion, children who are affected by divorce in America have long-standing psychological issues that follow them into adulthood, which ultimately impacts their chances for happiness in adulthood. Um, these children are at a large disadvantage compared to children whose parents stay together. Therefore, it is the role of parents, teachers, peers, counselors to understand this, to better understand how to help children of divorce to atta- to develop a healthy attachment styles so that they may find happiness in adulthood and also to build better relationships in adulthood. Um, attachment theory is useful to the study as it helps you understand why children of divorce face more issues and the psychological processes and pressures that they face following divorce. Um, these issues. Uh, The children of divorce are faced with are often carried into adulthood and can ultimately affect their happiness, as I previously said, and it emphasizes the need for extra support for children of divorce to help create healthy coping mechanisms and ultimately healthy attachment styles so that they have the best chance that they have, they can have in adulthood for happiness.
0: That was Rachel Blocker. Next is Harrison Cook with the presentation, Gender and Debate, Applied Education Matters. For good ideas and true innovation,
2: you need human interaction, conflict, argument, and debate, Margaret Heffernan. Hello, my name is Harrison Cook. I'm a junior here at Arkansas State University, currently studying communications, Um, In which I am taking a class called gender communication with Dr. Sarah Scott. My presentation today will be over gender expectations within the debate space. As I have a very limited amount of time, what I'm going to do in today's speech is first go over the thesis uh, is going to go over the gender concepts um, that I'll be using to analyze my artifacts. Um, I'll talk about my artifacts. I'll also give a little bit of a debate background and then we'll go into the analysis. Um, So first, looking at gender concepts, what we're going to be looking at specifically is gender expectations for masculine and feminine individuals, uh, performing individuals, excuse me, Um, specifically looking at five different sex first with confident and passion, second with dressing up, third with energy, uh, fourth with aggressiveness and courteousness, and five with tone of voice. Um, I'll get more into why those are all important here in just a moment. Um, one of the things that we also need to preface this with in debate, there is a hierarchical structure of power in which the judge is the say all be all. Now with this means that judges can make their decision based on whatever they choose to. And if though they have deeply entrenched gendered expectations that can play a role either consciously or subconsciously into their decision-making. Uh, what this project aims to do is explore um, those through the use of, analy- uh, of ballot analysis um, in which judges write their reason for decision and critiques for debaters uh, to better understand the issue. So I'm gonna divide up my ballots into three different, uh, in three different levels. First at the national level, where judges have the most training um, and have the most uh, critical understanding. Second is going to be regional, where this is slightly decreased. Judges may be college students, may be hires, may be other individuals who may not have that same level of professionality. And finally, at district, where it's just all hands on deck, we're trying to get as many judges as possible, which means there's not a lot of training that goes on and analyze the differences. Uh, so first, looking at national, looking at all five of the different uh, tenants of the ballot analysis what we found is that at the national level judges are more professional the differences were negligible between masculine and feminine performing individuals essentially um, there were a few instances where it was one or the other but this could be related to just a a simple judge incident Um, but what we found is that there's not a huge amount of difference at the national level thus far second looking at the regional level at those five different the biggest um, the biggest difference was had to do in confidence and passion. So, within debate, uh, confidence and passion are typically used as either masculine or feminine terms, with masculine being related to more powerful, uh, the more powerful confidence ad- adjective uh, versus passionate, which was the more feminine uh, performing ad- adjective. Um, so, here we saw that uh, just on confidence and passionate alone, feminine performing individuals were uh were critiqued nine times versus masculine performing individuals were only critiqued twice and um, so this is a this is a huge issue in which we we are talking about projection voice tonality um how aggressive they are in argumentation this is all goes into kind of uh the reasoning for this but i'll go more into my uh i'll go more into that with my paper um and with confidence uh, feminine performing individuals were only told four times that they were confident versus five times that they were passionate, five different instances. Um, and most of the time with passionate, it was a critique that they were too passionate. Looking at the second most important thing was tone. Um, tone good tone has is mostly attributed to masculine performing individuals because of their deeper, richer tones um, or consider, considered the better um, and richer tones, uh, where two masculine performing individuals were told that their tone was great versus zero uh, compliments and or critiques on um on feminine performing individuals now looking at district which is this the behemoth of the project confidence versus passion um so in confidence alone there were two times in which masculine individuals were told that they were confident and three times where if they were feminine were uh, more confident however Masculine performing individuals had four instances of being told to be more confident versus only one with a feminine performing individual. This means that confidence is more of a gendered expectation for masculine performing individuals. Looking at dressing up, uh, there were three instances in which masculine performing individuals were told that they needed to dress better. Um, And finally, with tone, Uh, There were 11 masculine individuals, uh, masculine performing individuals versus four feminine performing individuals that were told that their tone was great. This is a huge problem. Uh, Not only that, but there were three feminine performing individuals who got critiques on volumes alone. In conclusion, this paper is, is starting to find problems in which our gendered expectations affect how we not only interpret the arguments that are being made, but also how we accept them. Something I moved to do with this research project is to highlight this issue and bring it to our attention.
0: That was Harrison Cook. Next is Mackenzie Dodds with the presentation, Racial Disparity of Soldiers Sentenced to Death in the Korean War for Crimes of Sexual Violence.
3: Sexual violence is rarely addressed in military history, particularly during the Korean War. Even rarer, however, is the connection between the defendant's racial backgrounds and sentencing severity. Minimal research has been done on this topic due to the lack of primary sources available, the politicization of issues involved, and the disturbing nature of the crimes in question. The American intervention in foreign countries as a supposed savior in opposition to communism is often treated as a heroic act, but highlighting the dishonorable acts in the wake of this intervention is incredibly important. History must showcase all angles of the actions of the American empire. For every case of rape, murder, and sexual violence in the Korean War, there are countless others that never even made it to court. Using previously unstudied court-martial transcripts, in addition to tracing the ancestral lineage of defendants, this research will delve deeper into the sentencing discrepancy between African-American and white soldiers charged with similar crimes of or relating to sexual violence during the Korean War. The statistics indicate that black soldiers were consistently punished more severely than white soldiers. Of the death sentence cases, at least two-thirds of them were against African-American defendants. This research explores the individual cases of the soldiers sentenced to death for crimes of sexual violence and uncovers the effect of race on the judicial decisions regarding them. Topics such as sexual violence and racism in the military are uncomfortable for most, but they remain imperative to be discussed truthfully and thoroughly, for without facing the darker side of our own history, we will never see the light. Sexual violence is an unfortunately common crime in the military, but it is also one of the least addressed. The legal system is also no stranger to racial disparity. Between the history of slavery in America and the current state of racial inequality, racism has been a constant presence in the nation. Police violence and racism in both the justice system and the military are present even in today's society. So it's no surprise that the Korean War would exhibit similar if not worse statistics in terms of sentencing these defendants. The combination of sexual offenses and racial disparities within the military during the Korean War form the foundation of this research in which a clear pattern exists. Black soldiers were more likely to be sentenced to death for crimes of sexual violence in the military during the Korean War than white soldiers. The crimes committed were heinous and deserving of severe punishment, but the justice system's delivery of said justice was unequal to the offenders. Of the 43 cases in the database compiled by my mentor, six of them closed with a death sentence. Based on the trial records, the cases that resulted in a death sentence were those that included both murder and rape. However, some cases such as that of U.S. versus Fowler, DeCoster, and Jackson, in which an unnamed Korean female was violently raped and murdered, the defendants did not receive the death sentence. And yes, these three men were white soldiers. Of the death sentence cases, however, four of the defendants' identities were confirmed and mentioned in official court documents to be black soldiers. The military court-martial transcript specifically identified these black soldiers as Negroes, which in itself suggests the presence of racism within the court. Most of the racial identities were confirmed in the primary source court-martial transcripts and confirmed with census data alongside military draft records. I will not describe any of these cases in detail as they are incredibly disturbing crimes, but the following is a brief summary of each case with confirmed racial identities. Private Ernest L. Ransom was hanged in 1957 for the rape of a small girl and the murder of a Korean guard in 1953. He was described as a Negro from Gary'sburg, North Carolina, in the transcript. The 1951 case of U.S. v. Borner, Howard, and Ware resulted in the death sentence for Sergeant David J. Borner and Sergeant Nathaniel Howard, while Private Clifford E. Ware received life in prison for charges of murder and rape. All three men were black soldiers. In the case of U.S. versus Day, the court-martial transcript details the brief concern of the civil attorney that it was not a fair trial due to racism toward the defendant, Johnny Day, yet the presence of two, quote, members of the Negro race, end quote, apparently deemed it a fair enough trial. He was charged with murder and rape and sentenced to death. Private Henry L. Hunter of the 512th Engineer Dump Truck Company was a black soldier sentenced to death for multiple murders and rape charges in 1951. Although the president himself overturned the death sentence, the CMA confirmed it anyway, and Private Hunter was put to death. Upon research into the ancestral lineage, the remaining two cases defendants are unconfirmed, but with multiple potential African-American identities. While researching all of the convicted soldiers, I noticed a consistent pattern in which there were significantly less records of black soldiers than white. Where I could easily find records and newspaper clippings of births, weddings, and deaths for white soldiers, the only consistent record of black soldiers was the legally required census and draft cards. I found several potential identities for the U.S. versus Long case that indicate he could have been a black soldier as well, but at this time I will not say such a thing with full certainty. However, the potential for yet another one of the soldiers sentenced to death to have African ancestry only furthers the claim of racial disparity within these cases. With this in mind, at least two-thirds of the death sentences were set upon black soldiers. This uneven ratio combined with the fact that multiple white soldiers were convicted of the same or similar crimes without being sentenced to death, it can be confidently concluded that African-American soldiers experienced a severe form of discrimination in the court system for crimes of sexual violence in the military during the Korean War.
0: That was Mackenzie Dodds. Next is Elizabeth Harrison with the presentation, What If I Want to Fly?
4: First, I'm going to explain the text that I analyze. Secondly, I'm going to discuss my theory and methodology. Thirdly, my analysis. And finally, I will provide some final thoughts. Bridgerton is a hit Netflix series based on a series of novels. The show is set in the 1800s in England, a time of debutantes and extravagant balls, Eloise Bridgerton, a fictional member of a wealthy family, exhibits rebellious behavior and an unwillingness to participate in society's standards for her as a woman. I believe this media to be important for gender studies because it demonstrates the societal expectations for women during this time and how women began to break the norm, even in small ways. I textually analyze this media to provide a theory. The objectification and dehumanization of women, specifically in the 1800s, has created a strong foundation for the gender roles and expectations for women. The specific gender concept I will be focusing on for this presentation is objectification. Objectification can be defined as the degrading of a person to the status of an object. Throughout the series, Eloise Bridgerton protests the expectations of her and her sisters regarding marriage, motherhood, and education. In one conversation with a close friend, Eloise comments on an art display by saying it was quite dull because it, like all these paintings, was done by a man who sees women as a decorative object. Eloise makes a bold statement in a public setting about the male perception of women and their role in society. In this time, women were expected to exist for their husbands and him alone. Young girls often spend their time in this show choosing fabrics for dresses and preparing to meet suitors for marriage. Young women in this show are taught from a young age on how to act and appear in order to attract a husband. This objectifies women by diminishing their individual thoughts and desires and magnifying their usefulness for men. In another public conversation, Eloise expresses her frustration with her mother's obsession to raise her children for marriage and motherhood. She states, I shall have to stand by and watch dear mama appear proud because some man should like to admire my sister's face and hair and fill her up with babies. The mindset that women were bred to marry and then produce heirs to continue the family line demonstrates the objectification of women during this time. Women's bodies were seen as factories for children rather than living, breathing humans with emotions and, and desires. Eloise's mother demonstrates the an urgency to marry off all of her daughters in order to ensure that they will be taken care of later on in life. I believe that this is due to the fact that women were not given the opportunity to provide for themselves, not necessarily that their mothers did not want them to do so. Along with being raised for marriage, women were not given the same opportunity for education as men were. Instead, women were taught household skills and etiquette. Eloise also exhibits a desire for more in life by saying, Having a nice face and a pleasant, ha- and pleasant hair is not an accomplishment. Do you know what is an accomplishment? Attending university. By societal standards only allowing men to obtain college education and not women, women are forced to become dependent on men for survival. This practice only encouraged the objectification of women further by systematically excluding women from the educational scene and forcing them to marry. Women did not begin to obtain college degrees in England until almost 1900 proving that the objectification of women is long-lasting. Restricting women to the role of wife and mother denies women the right to their own thoughts and desires. Eloise Bridgerton expresses her dissatisfaction with the expectations for her as a woman by asking the question, why must our only options be to squawk and settle or, se- or never leave the nest? What if I want to fly? Unlike her friends and family, Eloise desires for, for more in her life than marriage and motherhood. Women during this time period really only had two options, either to marry and have children or remain with their parents until you do so. Eloise sees more options for her future and expresses her want to explore them. She strongly protests the standards that her society has set in place for her by initiating rebellious conversations. While this may seem like a small act, the fight, for object- the fight against objectification had to start somewhere. In the Netflix series, Bridgerton, Eloise Bridgerton rebels against societal norms for women in the fight against objectification. She inspires viewers to break norms and demonstrates the impact that this has on society. This is interesting because even though that the ways women were objectified in the 1800s may seem extreme, objectification still occurs in our society in very obvious ways.
0: That was Elizabeth Harrison. Next is Rochelle Haywood with a presentation, an analysis of self-identity and social norms in the film Moonlight. At
5: some point, you got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. This was some advice given to a young boy named Chiron in the 2016 film Moonlight. It chronicles Chiron's struggle to find his self-identity as a poor black gay male from childhood to adulthood. Throughout the film, Chiron battles social pressures to meet society's standards of masculinity, while at the same time moving further and further away from the person he truly wanted to be. The textual analysis that I'm going to conduct is crucial in understanding the internal and external struggles that Black men and boys face when dealing with the effects of social norms when crossed with intersectionality and self-identity. I decided to conduct this research on this topic because I felt as if the first thing that comes to people's mind when they hear the term gender are women. And I wanted to shine a light and direct the focus of this project towards men, and in this case, poor gay Black men, as it is very important to the study of gender overall. Okay, the thesis and gender concepts I have constructed is While this is an ongoing research project, the preliminary findings suggest that our sense of self-identity is directly linked to how others perceive us to be. And gender concepts, I will be focusing on, but my main focus will be identity construction. But to back that up, I'll have intersectionality mainly. Okay, so self-identity is defined as the way that people see themselves as individuals and as members of groups, as well as how others see, see them in, as individuals and members of groups. Identity includes, but it's not limited to, gender, sex, race, class, sexuality, and nationality. When these identities cross with one another, we are along the guidelines of intersectionality as proposed by scholar and race feminist, Adrian Wayne, who explains identity, that identity is multiplicative rather than additive. And in this case, Chiron's intersectionality consists of being black, gay, poor, and male. In the film, one of the first people that tries to identify Chiron is a character named Juan who ultimately becomes Chiron's father figure um, as Chiron is being poorly raised by a single mother. And the advice that was given to Sharon is at some point, you got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. You can't let anyone decide that for you. The next character that um, helps to construct Sharon's identity is a character named Kevin, who was a childhood friend of Sharon and through his teenage years also. Kevin was the only kid when they were younger that actually took the time to get to know Chiron before judging and bullying him like the other kids. He gives Chiron the advice to try his best to um, show the other boys that he is not soft so they won't pick on him. And lastly, the final character that shaped Chiron's identity was his mother, um, who actually denied him the love that he needed as a child, which was partially um, and ultimately the um, cause for Chiron's um, hard exterior as an adult and him resulting to becoming like the only father figure he known, which was Warren. And in conclusion, the um, research that I conducted highlighted the masculine standards that Black men and boys are expected to uphold along with internal and external repercussions that form when they fail to do so. And also, um, it concludes my um, thesis statement that other people's perception is basically how we as individuals form our um, self-construct and identity.
0: That was Rochelle Haywood. To hear more segments like this one, you can subscribe to the Created State Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And take KASU with you wherever you go. Listen to the Created State Podcast segments on the new KASU mobile app. And As always, tell others about the Created State Podcast and leave a five-star review, as we'd love to hear from you. You are listening to A-State Connections and Created States Podcast on KASU, streaming live at KASU.org. I'm Jonathan Reeves.